The Papal Conclave has lasted six months. It's summer, and members of the College of Cardinals are sweltering in the heat. Meanwhile, the Europe outside of the Papal States is volatile. Shifting relationships between nations often erupt in all-out war. The Protestant Revolution has dampened the Vatican's political power, and some see the Church as culturally anachronistic in the wake of the Enlightenment. Then, on August 17, 1740, cardinals don't mix straw with their ballots when they burn them after a tally. The result is a puff of white smoke. A choice has been made. The new pope will be a complicated man and will walk the tightrope between science and faith. He's steeped in the church's history, but isn't afraid to ask questions. His name is Benedict XIV. Fast forward to 2012. St. Louis, Missouri is home to one of the first international conferences on the life and work of Pope Benedict XIV. It's a joint effort between Washington University, St. Louis University, and the Missouri Historical Museum. We'll spend some time examining the life of Benedict XIV with conference organizer and Washington University professor Rebecca Messberger. Also, we'll spend some time with some of the experts who gathered in St. Louis to talk about the life of Benedict XIV. Even though Benedict wasn't the odds-on favorite to become Pope, he didn't completely come out of left field. Rebecca Messbarger says early on, the boy who would become Pope was labeled a rising star. So he was born in Bologna, and uh, that was the most important university city. He was in a noble family, but that had lost its wealth. And he was a very studious young boy and was sent at a, at a young age, when he was still a, you know, a young teenager, to Rome to study. And he studied canon law. Um, and he remained in Rome for a really uh, extended period of time and was pretty quickly brought to the attention of church leadership as a brilliant young man. And he was given positions of great responsibility very quickly. Perhaps no skill would serve the Pope better than his mastery of church doctrine. It's a skill that he honed early on while serving in a position commonly referred to as devil's advocate. For 20 years, uh, he served as the promoter of the faith, what's more popularly known as the devil's advocate. And it was his job to counter claims to sainthood and miracles. Um, and he did this primarily by means of the new sciences and in particular anatomy. So he was educated in anatomy for 20 years. He was really steeped in anatomical science um, for these 20 years that he served as the devil's advocate. And then that became the basis for this massive four-volume doctrine on beatification and canonization that he wrote. And it really came out of his experience um, in this powerful position.
Once he became pope, Benedict XIV set out to complete a massive art complex in Rome. It was the first of its kind. And Carol Paul of UC Santa Barbara says the complex also laid the foundation for one of Rome's biggest industries, tourism. People know a lot about the Louvre. They know that it was um, sort of opened at the time of the French Revolution, and that's been thought to be the first really important public art museum. But it turns out that it wasn't. It turns out that the that, that opened in 1793, and it turns out that what I would consider to be, as a, a scholar of museum history, and art museum history in particular, the first really important one was the Capitoline Museum, which opened in 1733, and which was opened by the popes, which was founded by the popes. So, you know, the, the idea of this public art museum is that it's this modern, enlightened thing, and that's not something that we usually associate with popes. Um, so, even though the popes were great patrons uh, of the art and of culture. Um, and the museum was actually begun by the pope who preceded Benedict, that was Pope Clement XII Corsini, um, it was founded in 1733, opened in 1734, and was really a path-breaking institution. Uh, and then Benedict became Pope in 1740, so Clement really you know, didn't oversee it for that long a period of time. And um, Benedict significantly expanded the museum and really did many things to it that made it a model for later museums. And, and so, what, can you tell me what this idea of the grand tour is? This was really critical to to the, re to the reason behind the popes, you know, were the founders of the first really important public art museum. Um, the Grand Tour was really the beginning of modern tourism, of modern cultural tourism. Everybody who travels today, you know, when you go, you go to a foreign city, you go to see museums. That's one of the main things you do. And this is when it really began in the 18th century. Now, it's, it's, was given this name, the Grand Tour, by the English. And people from all over Europe traveled, and they especially traveled down into Italy. That was really their destination because, um, because of the art, but also because of nature, um, you know, because of the historical importance of Italy and of Rome in particular. Rome was really their prime destination. They traveled for music. Um, you know, they traveled to get away from England and, um, um, you know, uh, do things that were kind of raucous, get drunk, get involved with women. Reasons that people, young people still travel today. It's a little like spring break. Right, exactly. Uh, except that it lasted about three years. By most accounts, Pope Benedict XIV had a particularly high political acumen, and according to Christopher Johns, a co-organizer of the conference and professor of history of art at Vanderbilt University, the Pope wielded art as a political tool. I think that, uh, that, that cultural politics is what comes into play, that when you don't have an army to defend yourself, what you do have is culture and you have tradition. So what you do is you start opening museums, you preserve the national patrimony, you restore monuments, uh, old basilicas you know, that date from the Constantinian period. You show Europe, and by extension then the world, that you're a responsible curator for a shared cultural inheritance from the past. And that's really what holds, you know, sort of you know, in this fragmented, dynastically competitive society of the 18th century, it's basically culture and tradition that hold things together. One of the mistakes that the monarchies made during the 18th century was attacking these 
sort of traditional privileges of the church to the extent that they undermined their own claims to obedience and, and their right to rule through inheritance because that's what the church was. It was a succession of rulers going all the way back to St. Peter who the church claims to be the first pope. Well, if a king, who is king because his father was, his, was a king, uh, questions this whole principle of dynastic succession and the traditions that that represents, then ultimately his own claim to authority and the obedience of his subjects is called into question. And that's exactly what happens in the 18th century. And so it all comes tumbling down. Then the culture was sort of a, a defensive weapon being used by, by Pope Benedict. It's both defensive, but it's also propagandistic. Um, you, the papacy uh, had to continue on some level to show itself as a relevant player in contemporary Europe. It couldn't do it militarily by, you know, sort of conquering other countries. Because it's such a gerontocracy, you know, the average pope who's elected is well into his 70s. Um, in the 18th century. This is a government by old men, often tired old men and infirm old men. Um, the, way you, the only way you can really continue to be involved in Europe in a meaningful way is through culture. And uh, popes and Benedict XIV in particular, they pioneered the idea of the modern hospital. Uh, the hospitals, charitable institutions, orphanages, um, establishments for penitent prostitutes, those kind of sort of what we would call sort of social services in the social safety net, that was more advanced in the Papal States than anywhere in Europe. Although the, 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 the rap historically is, is the papacy's backward and there's no money and all this kind of, this is rubbish, it's not true at all. You had a lot more freedom. If you were a poor person, it was a lot better to be a poor person in Rome than it was in London or Madrid or St. Petersburg or Berlin or, or even Paris. Uh, because there's such an established idea of uh, that, it, you, that the citizens and the government owes it to people to help them. Um, tourists talk about how beggars were everywhere, but what Benedict said is that these, these basically are um, the gifts of Christ, because then this gives us an opportunity to exercise charity, which is one of the, you know, sort of one of the tenets of salvation, you know. So they saw beggary and this kind of thing in a positive way. That's why the beggars went outside the churches, because they understood the connection between charitable giving and, uh, uh, and sort of Catholic spirituality. Um, this is not the case in most other so-called Christian capitals. It's a good time to bring conference organizer and Washington University professor Rebecca Messbarger back into the conversation. She spent a lot of time researching and writing not only about the Pope's support of science, but his support of women in science. And as with his patronage of art, Benedict's support of women in science is also a signal to the rest of Europe that Rome and the church are culturally relevant. You know, he comes out of Bologna, and that is such a part of his identity. He never stops looking back to Bologna. And Bologna had a long history, both real and mythic, of learned scientific women. I mean, from the early Middle Ages, there were cases of women who were medical practitioners or scientific practitioners and who were operating in uh, the sphere of the university. Um, some of that, though, you know, we know is, is, is probably more myth than reality. But 
clearly he knows that history and he's building upon it. In contemporary Bologna, um, we're going even further in the institutional promotion of learned women. And so part of it has to do with where he comes from. You know, once he goes in 1740 to Rome, he never steps foot in his native city, but he also never stops micromanaging all these aspects of, of life on the ground, religious, but even more uh, cultural life. Laura Bassi is one of the most uh, amazing cases because, you know, here she is, this young woman who was being secretly taught modern science and by a professor at the university. And um, Benedict, when he becomes archbishop, learns about this case and he involves himself in it. And she becomes the first woman to receive a university degree in Bologna. And he is behind the scenes, sort of facilitating every aspect of this public recognition of this woman. She's called Bologna Minerva, Minerva. And she becomes a, a symbol and an icon. Medals are made, paintings are done to celebrate this, the achievement of this woman, but more importantly, the achievement of Bologna for raising up this particular woman scientist. Um, so he attends her dissertation defense. He attends the orations that she's required to give at the annual public dissection. And he's intimately involved in, uh, in, her, in her public representation. And then there's Benedict XIV's handling of the big scientific elephant in the room, Galileo. John Heilbrunn of the University of California at Berkeley says as with most things Pope Benedict did, it's complicated. In fact, Galileo's saga took place uh, over a hundred years before Benedict became Pope. Of course, it was a thorn he would have liked to remove because it was an opportunity for Protestants to clobber the church over uh, relations with science, but he couldn't do it. He didn't manage to do it. He did manage to remove a blanket prescription against uh, Copernican theory, against uh, uh, the notion that the Earth uh, is in motion, is a planet, and the Sun is at the center of the uh, system. He did manage to get rid of the blanket uh, prohibition against such books, but he could not, he didn't feel that he could remove Galileo from the index. So you've got this peculiar situation in which the blanket prescription goes, but four or five books uh, mentioned by title and condemned by previous popes or under previous popes remained. Man of science, champion of learned women, politically savvy administrator, and prolific compromiser, all labels that could describe Pope Benedict XIV. Perhaps his philosophical legacy will be the way he handled the relationship between faith and science. With that in mind, we'll close the show with some thoughts from Rebecca Messbarger. He has a legacy as a world leader. You know, he's a political leader. 
he has a legacy as as a as a critical historical figure um, who sought to make more coherent the the mission and the authority of the church, um, and who was uh, directly engaged with contemporary thinking and not afraid of it. So. I think um, there, there are lots of finite things. You can point to the Capitoline Museum, the Institute of Sciences in Bologna that's still extant. You can go there today. Uh, you can point to the doctrine that he wrote that is still being used. You know, his volumes on canonization are still the basis of that procedure today. But it is more of a relationship between religion and modernity. And, and you know, maybe the contemporary currency of these problems. Today, we are still talking about the compatibility of faith and science. So perhaps going back to this 18th century pope helps illuminate the current controversies. The music for this show came from museopen.org a nonprofit focused on improving access and exposure to music by creating free resources and educational materials. And you can learn more about this show by visiting thought.artside.wustl.edu.